Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, and it's good to worship together in the house of God with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I must confess it's different to be on this side of the church, but it's good to be here. I bring you greetings as well from the New Life Fellowship Congregation in Holmesville, Ohio, in Holmes County. So if you ever find yourself on a weekend in Holmes County with nothing else to do, you can come and visit us. We would love to have you come and join us for worship. It's good to be here this weekend. We had a wonderful time with family, and it's a special privilege to have my grandparents here this morning as well. I want to start the message this morning with a bit of a uh, reading type story, and I hope you'll bear with me. It's a bit long, but hopefully it gets to the point of what I want to share with you this morning. And it goes something like this. It says, today the visitor to the city of Rome can visit the ancient Colosseum, and the mere sight of the gigantic structure is enough to cast a chill upon the hardest heart. Its massive structure fills the sky, but it's a mere skeleton of what it was in ancient days. As we step back and look at the Colosseum, it was known all over the world as the center and climax of Roman entertainment. The Roman masses had an insatiable appetite for observing bloodshed, so many gladiator games were held in the arena. They would train for many years till they were to the height of their strength and endurance. And then they would march into the arena, marching past Caesar, and all together they would shout out, Hail Caesar, those about to die, salute thee. Then the ferocious fighting would begin, and as they would fight it out on the floor of the Colosseum, when one triumphant gladiator had seemingly bested his adversary, he would look to the crowd to see what their will would be. If they gave the sign of a thumbs up, the wounded gladiator was taken from the arena, drug out, and would attempt to recover from all his injuries. But if it was the sign of a thumbs down, the victorious gladiator would give one final blow, and that was the end of his adversary. But this wasn't even that worst aspect of it all, because not only were gladiator games there, but there were many Christians slain on that same floor. And the sand of the Colosseum would bleed red if it would shed all the blood that was shed out on the floor there. It says, Many wild beasts, such as lions, tigers, leopards, and bears, were kept in pits till they were crazed with hunger. And one by one, the Christians would march into the Colosseum to be utterly destroyed. It says, one day, however, at the height of the gladiator games, during a celebration of the Roman victory over the Goths in about A.D. 370, a lone figure interrupted the proceedings, and without warning, this rough-looking man jumped over the wall into the middle of the Colosseum, and the excitement gave way to profound silence as all eyes turned from the gladiators and the fun that was happening to this lone, weary weathered man. He, had been, he was covered with a mantle and he had come all the way from Asia to Rome. He was a Christian and had heard what was happening. And by the grace of God, he intended to stop them. 
He shoved his way to the edge of the arena, jumped into the middle of the crowd on the floor, and he ran out in between two gladiators and loudly raised his voice and said, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, I command these wicked games to cease. Do not requite God's mercy by shedding innocent blood. Isn't that an amazing story of one man willing to take a stand for something he believed in, of one man willing to take a stand for something that he knew was wrong because of what God's word told him, one man willing to not only know it was wrong but actually take action and put into practice what he knew was right, and that was that he had to do something to stop these ferocious games and killings that were going on. And if only that were the end of the story, it would be an amazing story to tell. But it's still an amazing story. But it goes on to say that shouts of defiance met this man as pieces of fruit, stones, and other things were hurled out of the crowd. And one of the gladiators, expecting the applause of the crowd, stepped forward and ended this man's life right there in the middle of it all. The story goes on to tell us that his name was Telemachus, and while some of the details are a bit sketchy, it is a true story. And they say that after that day, that was the end of the gladiator games in the Colosseum. What a testimony. What a story. What a man willing to stand up and make a difference. As I read that story recently, I song popped into my head, and it's a song I think we used to sing a lot as children, but I think it could be the anthem for each one of us if we would apply it to our lives. I'm not going to sing it. I'll spare you that, but I will read it to you this morning. It says, standing by a purpose true, heeding God's command, honor them the faithful few. All hail to Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm. Dare to make it known. Many mighty men are lost, daring not to stand. Who for God had been a host by joining Daniel's band? It goes into the chorus again. I'll skip it. It says, many giants, great and tall, stalking through the land, headlong to the earth would fall if met by Daniel's band. Dare to be and dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Hold the gospel banner high, on to victory grand, Satan and his host defy and shout for Daniel's band. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. You probably know where I'm going next, but you can take your Bibles and you can turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. As I read that story of Telemachus, my mind went to one place, and that is a story that we all know very well, and that is in the book of Daniel, and I'm going to start in Daniel chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first eight verses in Daniel chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, 
which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish but well-favored, skillful in wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. And verse 8 is the verse, it's probably the theme verse for this morning. It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What does it say at the very beginning of verse 8? It says, Daniel did what? He purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile himself. How many of us, as we live out our Christian life, as we go from day to day, have we purposed in our heart to not defile ourselves with what the world has to offer us? Are we living this morning, are we living a very intentional Christian life? And if you look up the meaning of intentional, it has the meaning of deliberate or on purpose. Are you living your life this morning, your Christian life, in a way that's very intentional, very deliberate and on purpose? Are you living with a purpose? As Christians, we're called to something so much more than what the rest of the world, you might say, has. I think the rest of the world wants it. We sometimes deny it. The rest of the world couldn't live how I live. They couldn't come to our church. They couldn't do all these things. We're just so much different than everyone else. But why does the rest of the world go looking for something to cure what they don't have? Restlessness, anxiety, fear of the future, fear of all these things. Are we living a very deliberate Christian life? Taking time to let the world know that there is another way to live life. Taking time to let them know that the way they're living is wrong and there's a better way to live life. Are we living our Christian life with purpose? Or are we living our Christian life for the pleasure and entertainment of the world? I came across a saying that says the world has a lot to offer, but nothing to give. Do you believe that this morning? The world has a whole lot to offer, but nothing to give. You look, you look around the world today, you can go to where I've never been to most places, but you go to Las Vegas, so you go to different places, and it's all flashy billboards and posters and signs everywhere and big bright lights, and this is the life that you have to live if you want to be happy. This is where you have to be if you want true happiness in life. You have to have the money to own all this stuff. You have to be able to do all these things if you truly want to be happy in life. That's what the world tells you. Yet how often do those same people that have it all and have built it all and have gained it all end their life prematurely because of depression, 
do whatever it is because something in their business dealings went sideways. End their life because, you know, they tried to found a business, but it didn't work. So now we're just going to end our life because I can't have what everybody else has and I'm a failure and nobody will accept me for who I am. That's how the world looks at things in today's society. I don't know if any of you, any of you others came across it in the news this last week. There were some statistics from Pew Research. Maybe some of you see, I see Lyle shaking his head back there. If I have it right, by the year 2050, which is, what, 20-some years from now, Christianity will be in the minority in the United States of America. By the time my son, who is two years old, almost three, is in his 20s, Christianity is going to be in the minority in America. I've seen another study after that that said by the year 2070, Christianity is going to be somewhere, I think they said down in the 30% region of religion in America. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for the church today? What does that mean for our families today? We don't have to live in fear as Christians. We know that. We don't have to because we have something better. But my question to you this morning is, what is the church doing? How is the church living its life? Is the church living intentionally, taking time to show the world a different way, taking the time to show the world that with the love of Jesus Christ in your life, you can have fulfillment? With Jesus living in you, you can have true joy. With Jesus living in you, you can have the fulfillment of a body of brothers and sisters in Christ who can support you along life's trials and along life's journeys. Where is the church today is my question. Because obviously it's not doing what it should be doing. As we look around churches today, churches are so focused on reaching out, and rightly so. But they're reaching out by throwing away what God's word says to try and bring people in and get people to like them. Is that putting it too bluntly? I don't know. But that's the truth, I think. As I study churches today, we have to throw it away to keep people in and to bring new people in, and we just disregard everything else. Is that the life that Daniel lived? Daniel, I believe, lived by a set of principles, and Daniel, I think, is one of my favorite. He is. He's one of my favorite Bible characters throughout the Old Testament, maybe even in the New Testament. Why? Because Daniel lived a life of no compromise. Daniel didn't bargain. Daniel didn't do anything. He lived a faithful life, and though the Scripture doesn't tell us I imagine he died and was buried as a faithful follower of Christ. Why? Because of who Daniel was. And all the way back here when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, he did what? He purposed in his heart to not defile himself with what the king had to offer. We know the rest of the story. We know that after three years, they came back again, and the the four of them were fairer and fatter than all the rest. They looked better than all the rest. And they were cho- and obviously it says, um, verse 4 tells us, children in whom was no blemish but well favored. They were smart. They were good looking. They were uh, understanding science. They were cunning and knowledge. They had it all. They were obviously good looking young men. They had everything that the king wanted. That's why they were chosen. So Daniel wasn't some outcast, some down and out that, you know, just lived his life. Daniel was a good looking man who knew what he believed. What is the greatest commandment of Scripture? You can maybe go different ways, but as I understand it, it's to love 
the Lord our God with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind, right? But is that how Scripture lists it out? I missed something. What was it? To love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You can love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and your mind. People do it. And people make it through life that way. But if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, you're missing so much more. And when we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, there's, not a whole, there's no space left over. There's nothing left over to love anything else. Jesus even tells us that if we don't hate what, I forget how it all says for sure, but father and mother and sister and brother and wife and all of that, if we're not willing to put all of that down to follow him and to love him with everything, then we can't be his disciple if I have it right. Are we willing to lay down everything else because of our love for Christ? And you know what? One day it might come to that. I think we're probably closer to that communist society or obviously we're getting closer to being the minority here in the U.S. So what's that going to mean in the future? Taking time to memorize God's word, to spend time in prayer and memorizing scripture and all of those things. Do we take time to do that? I know I don't always. So I'm talking to myself this morning as much as anyone else. But are we living our lives very deliberately and on purpose in our Christian life? That's what I'm going to repeat to you this morning. And I'm going to look at several different things in the life of Daniel and in the character of Daniel that we can apply to our own lives this morning. Obviously, we all know the story of Daniel very well. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 and 11 says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went to his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. That's what Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 and 11 tells us, that Daniel went and he prayed. And we know what happened before this. They went and it says, basically, I'm going to put it in my own words. I hope you don't mind. I'll put it in my own words and I'll say, they went through everything that Daniel did. They went through all of his work. They went through all of his stuff. And what does it say? They could find nothing wrong with him. They found no fault in him. Is that not a testimony of someone? Would we not want somebody to say that about us? In our day-to-day life, in our business transactions, in our church life, whatever it is, that if they would go back through the books and they probably went through his money, financial things, whatever he did for the kingdom, whatever the king told him to do, They probably went through all of that, I would imagine, and it says they found no fault in him. That means everything came out perfectly. The books were balanced. The scrolls were perfect. Every responsibility was done perfect. Why? Because he purposed not to defile himself, and I believe he knew what God had called him to as a man. So it says they went to the king, and the only way they could find fault with him was in his God. That's what Daniel 6 tells us. The only thing they could find wrong with him was concerning his God. So they went to the king. They get him to sign the decree that nobody bows down or prays to any other God except for the king for 30 days, I think it was. But what does it tell us? This is following right after that. 
Now, when Daniel knew the writing, he knew it. He knew what just happened. He knew the king signed it. The king stamped it. There was no going back. He knew it. It wasn't the thing, well, he probably didn't know what happened, or maybe he didn't find out yet. No, he knew what happened. What did he say? It went into his house, and he sat on his couch, and he prayed that way. Or he, you know what, he might have said, I could just sit on the couch. Nobody would really know if I just mumbled to myself. You know, nobody would have to know what happened. Or, you know, I can even kneel in front of the window. I just don't have to open it. They couldn't really see. They might, you know, maybe they would hear me, but they wouldn't know for sure. Or, you know what, if I just lay on my bed, nobody would have any questions at all. I could lay down. I can take a nap. I could pray on my bed. Just do it that way, right? But what did it say? He did, basically putting in my own words, he did what he always did. He opened the windows. He got on his knees, and he prayed toward Jerusalem. That's who Daniel was. A man of discipline, a man of prayer, a man who had purpose in his heart all the way back there that he wasn't going to defile himself. Daniel chapter 9, you can turn there. I want to read the first seven verses. Sorry, I'll read the first eight verses. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy of them to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and far off. Through all the countries, whether, whether thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against thee. And the prayer continues going on. But as you read that prayer, there's some powerful things in there from Daniel. What, it, what is one of them? I believe as Daniel lived his life, he recognized maybe the one thing that Daniel recognized above everything else was who God was. He had God in the proper place in his life and that was at the very top of it all. He loved God with everything that he had in him, and he didn't give up anything for anyone, to anyone. He says, as you look through the first couple verses, first six verses there, he tells God that we haven't hearkened, we didn't listen to the prophets when they came. We're in captivity now because of our fault, because of what we did. It's not God's fault. It's nobody else's fault except ours. 
So he tells us that in verse 7, he says, Oh Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee. Here I am in this situation. I don't even have my same name anymore. I'm away from my family. As, I, as he stood in the hall back there with the portion of the king's meat and the wine and all of that, it would seem that there was only four faithful young men that stood up and took the, took the challenge to be different. Everyone else, maybe Daniel had siblings, maybe he had whatever it was, it would seem everybody else went the opposite direction. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but I would imagine it would have told us if there was more people than just the four of them. But he realized who God was. He knew that the reason he's in this situation, that the children of Israel are in captivity, is because they didn't listen and because they went their own way. And then he says, righteousness belongeth unto thee. He recognizes who God is. He recognizes that God is perfectly righteous, that God is holy, that God is just in everything that he does. And it's us as feeble, frail humans that fall apart and the wheels fall off the bus because we go about doing whatever it is that we want to do. Righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. We deserve to be confused. We deserve to be in captivity. Why? Because we didn't listen. Hard times are hard. I don't, I don't want to say anything this morning that is makes it sound otherwise, but how many of us cry out in the hard times and say, God, I'm here because of something I did or because of whatever the case may be. Do we recognize that even in the hard times, God is still in control of our lives? God is still our comforter. God is still our guide, walking beside us, taking us through whatever happens. So how do we put everything into practice this morning? How do we live a life like Daniel, living very intentionally? And it's very basic points this morning, but I hope maybe it can either encourage us to continue on or it can challenge us to pick up the slack, wherever that may be. Number one, we have to love God above all else. We talked about that a little bit already this morning. Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Never forget that word all inside of there. Give God everything. Surrender everything and hold absolutely nothing back when it comes to God. Give him full reign of everything. Number two, we have to love others as ourselves. John 15, 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Then he continues on and says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your, I might be butchering it, by your love for each other, basically. Do you love each other in that type of way? Where would churches be today if we would love each other, build each other up, help each other along, take the hand of somebody beside us instead of trying to bullnose, bull over somebody and make them look bad or whatever the case may be. Churches today torn apart by disagreements and infighting and all of those things while the world around them continues to go on. And Christianity, according to the statistics, fades from view. Friends, this morning it's a sad thought to think about. Number three, we have to study God's word. Daniel didn't come into the hall that day and just 
right then and there, decided that he's going to do what was right. Obviously, he knew what he had to do. Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Where are we going to find those things outside of the Word of God? That is the only place I know of to go and find. If you read the news media, the politicians are constantly backstabbing and running each other down and trying to make the other one look dumber than what they are. If you look at anywhere else, doesn't, you don't have to go far at all to see what's happening. So we have to study God's word. Do we know what's in it? Have we memorized it? Have we applied it to our life? Taking things out of it. Repenting when it shows us wrong and realizing that it's God's holy word. Number four, First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. We have to spend much time in prayer. We have to stay connected to God through his word, through, his, through what he gives us in his word, but most importantly through prayer. Do we take time to pray? Do we take time to Commune with God in prayer, not just pouring out what we need and then running off for the day. Do we take time to commune with God? And it's, it's something I've been working on in my own life. Not just saying what I need from God, but listening, waiting, and communing with God in that way. That is the only, what do you want to say, connection we have. We lived, over, we lived in Grenada for a couple of years. The only connection we had to some of our loved ones during that time, they did come and visit us, but that was through the telephone or through a video call or whatever. That was the only connection. They weren't on the island. We couldn't just stop in at mom and dad's house or whatever. That was the only connection we have, and that is the only connection we have to Jesus Christ. And I believe this morning the church is probably losing its power, losing its strength through the failure to pray and spend time with God. Number five, Daniel was a man of high integrity and high, what would you say, moral values. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Christians shine as lights in the world. So as people look at your life, we see in the life of Daniel, the scripture tells us very plainly that the only thing they could find wrong was in his, in his God, in his religion. And even then it wasn't wrong. He was connected, but that was the only thing that they could find to actually attack in his life. If people would look at your business dealings, at whatever you do in life, would they find you blameless and harmless? the sons of God, without rebuke, in the middle of a very crooked and perverse world. In the world today, you don't like someone, you sue someone. Somebody bumps into you, so you sue them for all they have, and you try and ruin them so that you can get everything out of them that is possible to get out of them. But are we people of integrity in our business dealings? We often complain about our business dealings with other people, but we don't often hear about our business deals with someone else. What does that person say after they deal with us in business life? And you know what? Business life is where the gloves come off and people's colors shine 
like they might never shine anywhere else. Unfortunately, that's the way it goes. We see the true side of people. And I'm not saying anything to you this morning. You probably don't already know. But just a challenge to us. Are we upright? Are we truthful in our business dealings and in our relationships with other people, whatever it may be? And are we truly shining like a city set on a hill? Like a candlestick, not with a bushel on top, but on a candlestick so that it can give light to all the house, to all the world around us. As Christians, we are called to stand out. We're not all called to stand up front and preach a sermon every Sunday or whatever. You might not be called to something lofty overseas or whatever it is, but you're called to be a missionary, whether that's overseas or whether that's in Waukee somewhere or in Napanee at the Martin supermarket or whatever the case is. You're called to say something to someone, whether you knew it or not. I want to end with a quote this morning by A.W. Tozer. And he has the word men in here, but I think we can apply it to the church or ladies. I think you can apply it to your lives as well. A.W. Tozer, and I think this was from the 50s or 60s. I'm not exactly sure. But he says, the most critical need of the church at this moment is men. Bold men. Free men, the church must seek in prayer and much humility the coming again of men of the stuff of which prophets and martyrs are made. Should I say it again? The most critical need of the church at this moment is men, bold men, free men. The church must seek in prayer and much humility the coming again of men made of the stuff of which prophets and martyrs are made. Are we willing to stand up and be like Telemachus and take action? Telemachus could have stood outside the Colosseum, and as people came, he could have tried to point him down the road to to his church. He could have started a, a Christian Colosseum where they have wrestling matches instead of actually killing each other. He could have started something else. He could have just stood outside and tried to talk to people. But what did Telemachus do? He stood up, he went inside, and he took action, and he put an end to what was wrong. What did Daniel do? Daniel could have bartered, you know, when the king signed the decree, he could have bargained. He said, well, you know, what's going to happen if I do this? Or what, what are people going to say if I, if I, you know, keep doing what I've always done? But the scripture doesn't tell us that. And by looking at the life of Daniel, I don't believe that's what he did. Daniel got down on his knees, opened his windows, as the scripture tells us, just like he always did. And he prayed. And he cried out to God. Friends, this morning, my encouragement to each one of us is simply this. Let's live an intentional Christian life with purpose, with drive to serve God with everything we have, holding nothing back. And not only serving God with everything we have, but showing that to the world around us, not through boastings and bragging and all of those things, but by living a life that is blameless and harmless as the sons of God. Let's shine as a light to the world around us. Let's be faithful followers of Jesus till he calls us home again. That's my encouragement to each one of us this morning. Let's not be fighting and bickering and doing all of those things, but rather let's focus on what's around us and let's give it all we have. Why don't we stand for a word of prayer? Father God, we come before you this morning.